another edition of the Road Dogs Podcast. I am your host, Nick Shaw, joined by my cousin and co-host, Josh Shaw. Josh, say hi. Jimmy was more than my partner. He was my best friend. He was the most righteous guy I ever knew. It's maybe my favorite line reading in that entire movie that we will talk about today, To Live and Die in L.A. by William Friedkin. It just like... In a movie that comes off quite grounded, it is the most cheesiest moment. <laughs> William Peter's like, he's the most righteous guy I ever knew. It's like, bro, righteous? That's a pretty tough line, Reed. My favorite one is when he gets the money from Willem Dafoe, and he's like, are we happy? And he goes, you're beautiful. <laughs> That's my favorite. Ladies and gentlemen, this week we will be discussing William Friedkin's classic crime thriller, 1985's To Live and Die in L.A. Um, as we talked about last week on the show... Earlier this month, we lost one of our great American filmmakers, William Friedkin, director of such classics as The Exorcist, Sorcerer, this movie, Killer Joe, Bug, take your pick. There's a bunch of them. Um, But I thought, you know, just kind of like we always do when a great creator passes away here on the show, maybe a little retrospect for A Forgotten Dog would be in order. What's your uh, your relationship with Friedkin? How back would you go? It's funny because, like, on an earlier episode of the show, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to pick the French Connection. And then I never do. You know, like, I've, it's yep, pretty I'm much <laughs> it's pretty much confirmed at the end of the show. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I never pick it. But um, that would be my first movie. And I saw that, like, I don't know, probably 12, 11. You know, we didn't fully understand it, didn't appreciate it for what it was. But the soundtrack and, you know, the car chase were just instantly kind of like those very exciting elements of his filmmaking that I still go back to this day. Um, but yeah, I would say probably the French connection, but yeah, I feel like he was a guy that because of my age and what his career was like at the time of the two thousands, I didn't really know about William Friedkin in depth until probably my twenties, my early twenties, which is weird to say now that I'm 23, let's check out last week's episode. Um, but like he just, he was more of a figure, I guess, of movies rather than director to me growing up. Where people are like, oh yeah, William Friedkin, I'd be like, oh, the guy with the aviators that has very passionate feelings about movies, rather than, you know, The Exorcist or Sorcerer or To Live and Die in LA or The French Connection or Cruising, all the movies that we'll talk about today. So he's almost, we talked about Kevin Smith a lot. It's very interesting how Friedkin, the person and his legacy changes in the 2000s, I guess. We'll talk about it in, in depth, like you said, but there is these high highs and f- very low lows um, with Friedkin. Um, he's very op- he was somebody who was very candid and very open um, and had kind of like this irreverence towards the medium in general. He was kind of like, look, all of my movies are not of the same quality. You know what I mean? So he was quite, you know, self-aware. But, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. Going through the 90s, there's a stretch of movies that are pretty tough, but... Um, I don't know i really like bug i think that's an interesting movie we talked about killer joe last week um mm-hmm. i feel differently about that movie now after watching a couple interesting do you want to do you want to say how or do you want to shelve that till we mention killer joe later we'll shelve that for later okay interesting yeah. interesting you know what we won't shelve for later is the introspect onto william friedkin's life uh, william friedkin was born on august 29th 1935 in chicago rachel and lewis friedkin uh, they were first-generation Jewish immigrants from Ukraine who fled in a particularly violent anti-Jewish time in, in 1903. Uh, Freakin's dad wasn't really interested in making a lot of money, so the family grew up very poor. Uh, his dad was a professional or semi-professional softball player in the early 1900s. I mean, come on, man. Like, what are we doing here? Like, that, I that's, mean, tough to be the kid who's like, 
her career day. They're like, hey, my dad's a doctor. My dad's a corrupt Chicago cop. And they're like, what does your dad do, Billy? He's like, oh, he's a, he's a semi-pro, only semi-pro softball player. Um, I think we should talk about this as I send you a text yesterday or the day before, but how important it is that William Friedkin grows up in Chicago and why I think this setting reverberates so much of the art that comes to be. There's a, there's a sense of edge. There's a sense of Mm. aspiration and there's a sense of uh, immediacy that I think does come out of, like we've talked about a lot of times on the show, having your back against the wall, you know, just last week we talked about. It's hot when you're kind of stripped down to your bare necessities. Um, that sometimes can be your strongest point, and I think that's usually when he works the best. I don't know if that environment had an, an in fact impact on him in that way, um, but that's just kind of what I feel from it. You know, like the, no one shoots a city quite the way William Friedkin does. Well, and I think also growing up in a city where crime and the cops are mm-hmm. so gray. You know, he's 35. He's, I think, Capone's gone, but I think his legacy is still firmly in the era of when Freakin is growing up. And then so much of the other Chicago mobsters are still going on that would reverberate through his lifetime that you could see being a 15-year-old William Freakin who's like, oh yeah, cops are not all good and criminals are not all evil. And it's, it's like the text I sent you yesterday of like, if he grew up in Farmington, Indiana, he would not make the French connection. William Freakin has family members who are famous in law enforcement who have taken down like big criminals in Chicago too. So there's also that impact too. And there are also police officers who were known for blurring the lines, um, which is yes. a huge thing in his work is who is cop, who is criminal. But nonetheless, we'll get into all that later. Friedkin attended Sun High School where he played basketball well enough to consider going pro. Can you imagine just hearing for the Washington Bullets, number 35, William Friedkin. As someone, you know how, like, I mean, maybe this is my YouTube homepage, but you see all the, like, I ran a career simulation of X player in Madden. Can yeah. someone do an NBA 2K24 career simulation of William Friedkin? How the tall is he? And the scarf on? I mean, come on. I don't know how tall he is. I don't have his card. Uh, he was his not sports a good reference. student. Yeah. Uh, Friedkin was not a good student in school, however, and achieved grades barely passable. He graduated at age 16, though. He said this was because of social promotion and not because of his academic abilities. Um, but you never really knew with Freakin. There's a lot of times where he's being a complete sarcastic asshole. And I mean that in the best way possible. And then there's also times where he's very candid and honest. So uh, he got a job in the mailroom at WGN TV immediately after high school. Um, by the time he was 18, he was directing episodes of live television shows and documentaries, one of which People vs. Paul Crump won an award at the San Francisco International Film Festival and contributed to the commutation of Crump's death sentence. This is pretty powerful. Um, Freakin tells a great story about this, how he went to this party of a producer for WGN. He hates going to parties, you know, and it was one of those social things where you bring like a lot of different people together. And he actually ran into the preacher who works on death row. And uh, that's how he got in, the talk, in contact with him. And he was like, do you think there's anybody on death row who is innocent? And Paul Crump was somebody he talked about. I saw little clips of this. I definitely want to go back and see it. There's all the early building blocks of the things he's going to carry over into making features. Um, but I think it's also important that we kind of hit on Freakin's path right here. Film school is not a viable option right now. There's not a television production school. He is a new Hollywood adjacent in the way that we always think and talk about him. And we'll get into the fact that he was in business with Francis and Peter Bogdanovich. 
um, Fritz Coppola and Peter Bogdanovich, sorry. Um, but he never made new Hollywood films, right? You know what I mean? He didn't He didn't go to film school. He, I don't feel like he's a, a, as obsessive of a film savant. He doesn't view himself as an auteur. Um, those films, to me at least, are often exploring some existential discovery, whether it be societal with the Vietnam War or more familiar with some familial with something like The Godfather. Friedkin never seems to have that high of regard for himself or his films. Um, and I think that's something born out of necessity, not disrespect always, like we talked about. With him, it's realism, and that's the key. Go out and do it and entertain me while you're at it. You know, while Exorcist may be a journey of faith or LA and Sorcerer ones of fate, the main purpose to me is to entertain. I think the cutting ground for Friedkin tells you everything you need to know about the artist he kind of becomes, and that is news and documentaries and on the ground, like boots recording. When you watch all of his movies outside of the Exorcist, like you said, said, none of them feel mythic. You know, none of them feel like they're this grand opera or parable the way that The Godfather is, or The Graduate to some extent. Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now. They all feel like <laughs> he just read a book or he came up with an idea. It's like, huh, that'd be interesting. I wonder what that'd be like to write. And then it's like, boom, there we go. Whereas a writer like Coppola, who gets The Godfather, languishes over like, what am I trying to say about family in America? And Friedkin's just like, yeah, um, I'm just going to use that take we used for rehearsal. I don't know. I kind of liked it better, felt a little more real. That's all he really cared about was like capturing the realness of it. Uh, and it's a question I wanted to ask you real quick because you did all the research on this. Do we know what was his movie that made him want to become a director? Because with Spielberg, we have the great um, – it's not the great train robbery, but we have that sort of stuff. Michael Mann, it's Doctor Strange Love. Do we know what made Friedkin go out of a high school and go, I want to be a director? Yeah, so at this point, Friedkin's not even thinking about making feature films. You know what I mean? He worked in the mailroom when he first got there, worked his way up for yeah. two years, and then winds up directing episodic television or documentaries. He's not even thinking features. Um, from everything that I've read and seen from the man personally, when he spoke in Friedkin Uncut, great documentary. I recommend everybody check it out. Citizen Kane was his big point. He went and saw that, um, and it, was, it had been out for a little bit, obviously, and like he didn't see it till he was in his 20s. And again, could be an exaggeration. You never really could tell with Hurricane Billy. But he does say in the documentary that he saw the first showing and then stayed all the way through the whole entire day and rewatched Citizen Kane three times. He said that was really the big jumping-off point. A lot of the French New Wave, Italian neorealism... All of the stuff that he loves is very hallucinatory and lucid narrative, but it's also the stuff that influenced him the most. Okay, that's interesting to me. Isn't it? Yeah, because Citizen Kane is like the exact opposite of like what I feel he'd be drawn to. You know, to contrast with what we were just talking about with like Coppola, is that Citizen Kane is a mythic story about man and like power, being a person, yeah. power. Yeah, like all these feelings of ambition and loss and grief and all this sort of stuff that you chase in pursuit of that runs so counter to everything he kind of makes. It's really weird. It was the thing that I had to rewind last night and kind of hear again to, to fully get it. But uh, in 1965, Freakin does make a move to Hollywood. Uh, two years later, he releases his first feature film, Good Times, not to be confused with the Benny Safdie and Josh Safdie film, Good Time. This is stars Sonny and Cher. He is referred to the film as unwatchable, but he found early success with his next feature, The Night They Raided Minsky's and The Boys in the Band, which is one of the first Hollywood films to feature prominently gay actors um, and storylines. His next film in 1971 is the one that would make him a legend in Hollywood forever, which was The French Connection, 
obviously released a critical critical acclaim uh shot in a gritty style more suited for documentaries like josh said he brought his news background into a lot of his features uh the film won five oscars including best picture and best director but not one to play it safe freakin then went to william blatty's novel the exorcist might have heard of that movie this is his career defining film whether we like it or not um much like connection did for the crime genre the exorcist is a landmark horror film it's one of the best films ever made also like connection there's a litany of essays documentaries and books on it so for the sake of brevity and the fact that there's really not much more to add to the conversation in my opinion it suffices to say that these are two films you absolutely have to see american classics if you haven't put them one and two on your watch list they're pretty readily available the one thing that I think we can maybe add to the discussion that kind of bleeds into everything else we're talking about is who Freed can tell stories about and who he cast and how that plays into the whole background that we have so far. He has never casted a real star, I would say. Never. He either always makes stars, in the case of Gene Hackman, Roy Scheider, The Exorcist. I think Ellen Burstyn was an actress out of them, but then he propels her up. Miller wasn't was a playwright. He he wasn't even an actor right. at that point. You know what I mean? <laughs> he plucks him off the streets and is like, "You're the lead in The Exorcist, the male lead in The Exorcist," and boom, there you go. And I think that is the great part of all of his movies to me, especially the early ones, which we're going to talk about a lot of. Is that he never has that feeling of I'm watching someone make a movie real. It it really does feel like a ton of documentaries, the most like heightened way visually and stylistically and like narratively. Really, um. We do kind of need to talk about the success of The Exorcist, though, because it bleeds into mm-hmm. our next film, which we're going to spend a little bit of time discussing, I think. The Exorcist is a cultural and controversial phenomenon. Um, there's lines for six hours to see The Exorcist. People are supposedly passing out in the theaters. I never saw The Exorcist in theaters, so I can't really attest to that. Um, but, you know, people it's- are vomiting in the movie theater at some of the content. It's safe to say, still to this day, that The Exorcist is a movie that makes me queasy, uncomfortable, and I feel disturbed every single time I see it. Um, but at that time, no one had seen anything like that, right? There are some times now where people might look at The Exorcist and say, oh, that looks kind of fake. That looks dated. Um, I would disagree, and I think that's what makes his films feel not dated is the fact that they look so visceral and real and have that documentary feel. They don't age. They're, they're perfect ca- time capsules. Um, but Freakin' is a household name in the way that directors at this point really aren't aside from Alfred Hitchcock, really. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going all over the world doing these great sassy interviews. I mean, William Freakin' always spicy. Um, I sent Josh one of my favorites this week where somebody's yes. trying to say it seems like he exploited the book of the Exorcist. Also had a great voice. Why don't we do more Freakin' impersonations? He's just like, who said that? <laughs> it's a hard. It's the thing I sent you is it's Reagan mixed with Trump, and so it's hard to do both those things. Of like, who said that? Like, it's got the yeah. Reagan finish there, but like the dryness of a Trump. Yeah. Um, but he's always defended The Exorcist, and time has revealed that it is a work of art. We still watch it all the time. It's constantly duplicated. There's a new Exorcist movie coming out in a couple months, if not a month. So it's still a property that's alive and well. Um, Freakin' at this point has a 10-picture deal with Universal. He's got a $20 million budget for whatever his next project will be because of the success of The Exorcist. It's insane. It's um, just absolutely insane. He could have done whatever he wanted. Uh, at this point, though, he finds a, he founds a company uh, with Francis Ford Coppola and Peter Bogdanovich. It's set up at Paramount Pictures, although it doesn't really do much. They release The Conversation, and Bogdanovich releases Daisy Miller. Freakin leaves the company abruptly without ever making a film, and it soon collapses afterwards. This is where things start to take the turn, though. 
he doesn't make another movie after The Exorcist until 1977, but he returns with Sorcerer, a 1977 remake of the French classic The Wages of Fear. Sorcerer stars Wurscheider, Bruno Kermer, Francisco Rabal, and Amadou. It follows four men from all over the world who, under nefarious circumstances, find themselves in the lamb in a poor South American village. When there's an explosion at the oil refinery, the four men are tasked with driving back dynamite improperly stored at a cache that would explode at any minute from the slightest vibration or movement. <laughs> this, I mean, I we're going to fall into this hole right here because yeah. I just discovered this movie 12, 13 days ago. Had I not, I probably would have picked it this week for my freaking film. Um, it has some of the most harrowing driving sequences of all time. What freaking did with raw danger and kind of fast twitchy nerves earlier with French Connection is slowed down here to finite calculations of space and maneuvering. All with the caveat, it could explode at any given time, and boy, do things explode. There's a bridge scene in here that took over <laughs> three months and $3 million. It's one of the most harrowing things I've ever seen. They blow up a tree? A real tree! Freaking called this movie his finest achievement. The production process was arduous. A lot of tension. A lot of things went wrong. There's, like I said, I don't want to spoil this movie in the sense that like, I hope more people who listen to the cast see it. Go watch Sorcerer. But the bridge scene had to be deconstructed because there wasn't enough rain during the flood season. They had to pump in these sewer systems that poured water overhead. The trucks fell into the water multiple times. The bridge broke. It went way over budget. And people were just kind of at each other's throats at that point. Not to mention the extreme danger throughout. Um, every single one of the scenes that involves driving this movie feels like something genuinely could go wrong at any moment. I mean, there's a shot of a bridge falling apart that shot from below. And the shot when you look at it, you're like, well, who's behind the camera? Because if somebody's behind the camera and that breaks, the camera's going to be broken. But if somebody is really behind that camera, that person's going to get smushed by the truck. So there's yeah. just this real sense of danger throughout the whole entire film. So much so that Roy Scheider said filming Jaws was a picnic compared to filming Sorcerer. Uh, we talked about the production of Jaws. Go listen to that episode. That says something. The Sorcerer, for those who don't know, like Nick said, it's filmed in South America. It's not like... They were just like, all right, let's just go to the studio in Los Angeles and we'll film there. And then, like, you know, we'll go to Venice Beach on the weekends. They all flew out to South America and just filmed it in the actual jungle. It is, it is, it's insane. It's just like, I, I feel like I heard about this movie around when Freaking passed because there are people smarter than us who had seen Sorcerer before then. And we're like, you know what? Sorcerer is actually his best movie. It's like the classic take or zag. And I was like, oh, sorcerer, whatever. And then you watched it, right? You watched it for this episode? Yeah. And then you were like, dude, you got to watch Sorcerer. Just like take some time out of your schedule and watch it. And I was talking with a friend of the show, Devin. And I was like, hey, man, I got nothing to do. Long time listening to a friend of the show. That's right. You want to watch a movie? He's like, yeah, sure. And I was like, you know, Nick recommended this movie called Sorcerer. It's about a truck that could explode at any second. And he was like, and that's, it's that easy. It's that easy. And what happened was the most insane two hours I have watched in a long time, because this is the fascinating about sorcerer without spoiling it. There is no plot. Really. There is, there is very little characterization of anybody. I would say it is not traditionally beautiful, but I was riveted for two hours. <laughs> it is the most like jaw dropping thing I've seen in a while. Oh, it, it, Josh is 100% right. It's minimal dialogue, too. You're with four yes. bastards the whole time. You know what I mean? None of these guys are good. But you find yourself, like, 
emotionally attached or like, no, don't, don't do that. You know? So that's the power of the movie that I think is so great. I feel like it's hard to talk about Sorcerer in, in true depth, even like without spoiling it, because like, it's almost just something like you have to just go see it. It is, it is insane. Like, I, I don't even know how to speak about it because I can't be like, give us a 10 minute TED talk about like the themes of Sorcerer. I don't really know if there is a theme to Sorcerer. Is there? there like, is. yeah, Freakin talks about too. It's fate. It's, okay, it's fate. It's about, that makes sense. You know, maybe some of these guys do something quite noble and good, but noble and good isn't the ultimate decider when you live and you die by the sword, which is a huge through line with a lot of these films. Mm-hmm. Um, Sorcerer is a, is a masterpiece, one of the last masterpieces of the 70s. It's viscerally incredible. I think it shot beautifully. I, I do disagree with Josh on that, but I do understand where he's coming from um, as well. But I highly recommend everybody go see it. It's a masterpiece because nobody saw it when it came out. And when I say nobody, I mean absolutely nobody. <laughs> I had a $22 million budget, and it made back $9 million. This is one of my 2023 discoveries of the year. It's been reappraised, uh, but no one saw it. And that's because a week before <laughs> George Lucas released Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, and beat. that completely changes the zeitgeist of filmmaking and audiences are looking for and what they're expecting when they go to the movie theater. Um, Freakin still felt like Sorcerer was his finest film. He was devastated by the critical and financial failure as he says as much. After this, he's kind of in a he's kind of in a downward spiral. I have a question: If Sorcerer doesn't release the week before the biggest movie in history, does it fare any better or differently? And how does that change Freakin's future? Not to play the what if game because it's impossible. But the only thing I'll say is the part that Roy Scheider ultimately plays was originally written for Steve McQueen, and I think I think if that is the way it goes, there might be a few more asses in the seats. Um, I love Roy Scheider. I think he's good in this movie. Not Steve McQueen. <laughs> and it's hard to market a movie that has three non-Americans that are all playing non-moral moral people in a setting that is not even closely American. Which was a huge problem with the production company. They wanted all of the names changed for the stars, and Freakin' pushed back. He said, oh, yeah, why don't you guys just have him call himself Ben Smith? I'm sure if you give him enough money, he'll do it. Yeah. Classic Freakin'. Um but yeah, his career is just kind of in a downward spiral for the first time, right? After, you know, hit after hit after hit or great documentary work and kind of cutting his own cloth and, and building this resume. Um, it doesn't get much better after this. He follows up with another unsuccessful crime comedy called The Brinks Job. Uh, I've never seen this. Never heard of it. A lot of these movies, as we'll talk about, are difficult to find, which sucks. But 1980 gives us Cruising. Crime thriller starring Al Pacino as a sexually complicated detective looking for a serial killer amongst the West Village leather scene. I'm going to speak on cruising a little bit um, as a straight man. Take this with a grain of salt. This is just how the movie made me feel. I think it's very ambiguous with its ending, its subject material, and its characters. And it's really graphic. It pulls absolutely no punches, as only Freakin' knew how to do. There's a missing 40 minutes, supposedly, that Freakin' says in Uncut is just absolute graphic sexuality. He had to bring the film to the MPAA over 50 times at a cost of $50,000. <laughs> yeah. It's absurd. But like The Exorcist, cruising open to controversy and protest. It also doesn't help that the film, while sleek and neon-laden, really doesn't handle some of its subject matter with nuance. 
Um, it's brutal for the sake of being brutal at times, and there's no real justification for or sensitivity to any of the characters. There's no declaration for either side of Pacino's character. Like it never really goes past the surface regarding his sexuality, or maybe his attraction to the S&M lifestyle, or maybe he's the killer. It just really kind of lets a lot of threads dangle. It's all over the place. Maybe I'll feel different on a rewatch. Like there's been a lot of reappraisal, and there's totally a cruising audience. Um, but it didn't work out critically or financially, so his cult streak kind of continues. I think The Exorcist is such an interesting case in regards to Cruz and all the movies we're going to talk about post. I would guess, I, I guess we post The Exorcist, is that I think the backlash to that, critically, all the sort of stuff that comes with The Exorcist, makes him fearless in regards to everything he does afterwards. That sorcerer doesn't go well, but uh-oh, whatever, I'll just do the Brinks job. That doesn't go well, oh my god, I'll just do the even like crazier ambitious project in uh, cruising, which no other director at the time would handle. You know, the closest that we're going to get is Philadelphia, but that's not for, what, another decade? So I, mean, I think... You, you can't even compare those two. <laughs> no, but I guess like it's the only big-name director, I think, unless I'm forgetting, which is absolutely possible that is like let me go into the gay culture in a real earnest way as a straight white director you know yeah i, he I hear you it's just to me i think looking back on it it, it might have done a little more harm than good um right. that's true personally, personally um but i think that it, it's an interesting artifact and i think you should definitely go and see if you haven't seen it and if you're kind of into those movies i will say that it is at its core a, a murder mystery with a different backdrop right it's not a backdrop yeah. that was was anticipated in 1980 or expected or talked about openly so it is a and uh, it's good in that sense i guess but i think the source material could have been handled a little bit differently personally yeah i guess i i, I don't want to debate quality uh, of cruising or it, its harmfulness. I just mean that right. I think when we, we get to the movie, which we're talking about this week to live and die in LA, I think the ability for him to do all these movies comes from the exorcist being so backlash the way it was, where he's just like, whatever. And, and like we talked at the start of the show, Freakin's career, I would say peaks in 74. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I don't even mean it in a negative way. I think <laughs> no, commercially, right. critically, I think, the Exorcist is still his best movie for whatever it means. I, I love Sorcerer. I love the movie we're going to talk about later, but you're shaking your I I for me at least, in a lot of people, The Exorcist is the peak of his career, uh, and it's his best movie. And so I don't think he he really like it's so interesting because in regards to a lot of directors who would have the like three run that he has to start his career, a French Connection, um, The Exorcist, and then Sorcerer, a lot of directors that go down from there would be so like embittered and sad and mean and would just really disappear off the face of the earth but freaking maintains just like he just keeps going and going and going and he's talking about movies and he's just such a passionate advocate for film even outside of his movies and the quality of them that i think it's a testament to him as a person that he just never gave up and always kept in the circle you're you're 100 right and i think it can also be boiled down to this one story that he tells real quick. He talks about the chase scene in The French Connection, and I don't want to go crazy into this, but if you know anything about the history of The French Connection, that chase scene was filmed completely illegally. None of the streets were shut, mm -hmm. shut down. Yeah. Didn't have permission to film in the terminal by the trains. None of that. It's all illegally filmed. Freakin would ask the um, transit authority how fast a train could go, and he found out that like, we don't put it at max speeds. Like, well, just say if you yeah. did, what would it go at? And they're like, Dude, like 50 miles per hour. He's like, okay, double that in my head. So that car chase is going 100 miles per hour. 
trying to catch up to that train. And people ask him, they're like, do you still have that guy in you? Is there still that edge? He's like, I didn't care at that time. Like, I wouldn't do it now, but I didn't care. And I think that's exactly the same kind of attitude he has towards criticism, same attitude that he has towards the reverence of film, the same attitude that he has towards violence. He doesn't care. You know what I mean? He is purely about the immediacy of capturing what his mind's eye finds appealing. I would say the only thing that changes about Friedkin really from French Connection to To Live and Die in L.A., which I promise the audience we're going to get to soon, um, is his feelings towards stunts. And it's never the audacity, but when you watch the behind-the-scenes stuff of To Live and Die in L.A., uh, this isn't spoiling anything, he talks very openly like, hey, as long as this is safe, we're going to do it. I think that's the only thing that changes and that matures in him in the most like respectful, good way is he definitely is much more like safety-conscious as he grows older from French Connection to Live and Die in L.A. I, another great point by Josh here. I mean, we're talking about a madman who slapped a, a priest yes. or an actor to get a better performance out of him and then started rolling. We're talking about a guy who shot a gun off right next to somebody's ear while on set. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about an absolute maniac. You don't get the nickname Hurricane Billy by being a nice guy. Um, his next flick, Deal of the Century, continues that bad streak. Terrible comedy with Chevy Chase and Sigourney Weaver, I guess. This was out of print up until 2014. It has an 11% on Rotten Tomatoes, whatever that's worth. And then we land on our flick of the week, which, like Josh said, I promise we are going to talk about <laughs> Live and Die in L.A. This is one of, if not the last, great freaking films in my estimation. I don't want to spoil anything, so we can get into that later. But L.A. is an overall success, marking his first one really since The Exorcist, so like 11, 12 years later. And because we need to get into the movie of the week, and a lot of these are kind of a mixed bag, uh, I'm going to run through his back nine of films. Rampage, The Guardian, Blue Chips, starring a young Shaq and uh, Kevin Garnett, Jade, Schools of Engagement, The Hunted, Ugg, Killer Joe, and his only post-Thomas release, Kane Mutiny Court Martial. There's some okay stuff in here, but nothing that really captures the rush of his earlier films. Uh, I think a lot of these either went underseen, had difficulty finding distribution and financing, or were critically panned at the time. I mean... It's just crazy to me that, like, you can't find a page, you know? It's only been released in Poland, which is something we'll just get to later. But I enjoy Bug. Hunted is okay. Blue Chips, like I said, has Young Shack, and I want to check that out. We talked about Killer Joe a little last week, which, after watching this, my estimation has changed. I kind of felt like when I watched that, I was like, you know, this is somebody who's maybe lost their technique um, or, or their edge. While I think that that movie is still not very good, he never lost his edge, and I misspoke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, there is a there's a, a danger and bug that is still right there as the same as French Connection. It's just pared down, and it's much safer, and we're on a soundstage, and it feels different. So to me, it felt less, you know, less freaking. It felt less dangerous, but it's still that same kind of scary energy so i do think i was wrong on that and i do think i need to watch killer joe again now which is kind of weird but i also misspoke on another thing saying that killer joe was his last film which will actually be the k mutiny court martial it's set to premiere at the 80th venice film festival in september uh he passed away at the age of 87 on august 7th freaking leaves behind a very dangerous authentic and visceral body of work tip the proverbial road dogs cap to you my friend thank you for your filmography hurricane billy I'm very curious what becomes of the Kane Mount Mutiny, Kane Marshall. 
Uh, I just, I think I butchered that, but you know, it's fine. Because, uh, like, it's got distributors. It's It's got distributed by Republic and Paramount for global stuff. Showtime helped produce it. Paramount Global helped produce it. So we should get it theoretically. And I'm very curious what that is as the final statement on his career. Um, it's a shame that he won't be able to promote it and tell us anymore. And the best you're going to get is essays and articles from people on Reddit and Variety being this is the ending statement and during statement about William Freakin's career. But I- I'm glad at least there's something to look forward to. It- this isn't a goodbye forever to William Friedkin. It's a, we're going to wait and hopefully have his last movie be something to really celebrate. So that's good. You know, like it's a really tough thing. I feel with so many artists when they die that you're just left with everything they have made. And it's like, that's it. That's the end. Yeah. You know? So we have a little while before it's really a goodbye to Friedkin, which is nice. It's nice. And we have a really important body of work that like, I think we'll be, and sometimes we do this, and the reason we chose him for this show is because he passed away recently, right? But I do think that there will be some critical reevaluation as time goes on for some of those later films. That's my hope. Mm-hmm. Um, but there will always be that respect and reverence as far as just, you know, we talked about Tarantino. There's just, there's no one who, there's just certain people who can, who can give a quote or can give an interview that just will leave you rolling on the floor. I mean, I have quotes ready to go from Friedkin's interviews. <laughs> I would imagine Sorcerer gets a greater and greater reappraisal as time goes on, just because I think people are going to be so drawn to it as the most, I don't want to say abstract, but it's the craziest movie he's done, which is really saying something <laughs> considering his filmography that I think a lot of critics are going to be like, oh, let me go check that one out or recheck it because it's been a while. And I hope that there's at least more buzz for that uh, in his passing. I agree. agree. All right. It's time. Let's talk about our movie of the week, 1985's To Live and Die in L.A. As we've discussed, Freakin is still at a low point. Um, so he's not really doing as much. I think there's a time where he's directing plays and operas. This might be prior, but uh, he gets former Secret Service agent Gerald Petovich's novel, to live and die in LA. Uh, and he was immediately attracted to it for its surrealism qualities of protecting the president one day and chasing down a phony dollar bill the next. Um, just in case anybody doesn't know, Secret Service also falls under the Treasury Department, so they deal with all fraudulent activity with money. Basic plot characters and much of the dialogue of the film is drawn from Petovich's novel, but Freakin added the opening terrorist sequence, the car chase, and earlier focus on the showdown between Chance and Masters, which is okay, I, I don't know. I wanted Masters in this a little bit more, which is something I think we can talk about in a bit. Mm-hmm. But the most important thing for Freakin at this point is to make an independent film. He wanted to strip down from all of the Hollywood nuance and the big budgets, and he would work with a crew that could move fast. That's what it was big thing was. Cinematographer Robbie Mueller, Paris, Texas, Repo Man, Dead Man, handpicked a non-union crew. That way we could be nimble. We can go to multiple locations. I can have you guys set up over here in the airport, and then we're working on the next shot over here. There's no sitting around on a freaking set. There's no time yes. to, to take a break. Um, he shot everything on location and worked quickly, as we've talked about, often using the first take to give a sense of immediacy. He didn't like to rehearse, but would create situations where the actors thought they were rehearsing a scene when they actually were shooting a take. He did this just in case he got something he could use. To this end, he let scenes play out and allowed actors to stay in character and improvise. For example, during the scene where Chance visits Ruthie at the bar, 
Friedkin allowed Peterson and actress Darlene Flugel to devise their own blocking and told Mueller, just shoot them, try to keep them in frame. If they're not in the frame, they're not in the movie. That's their problem. Which you can feel in the movie because the framing is a little bit off. When Peterson yeah. is talking, it doesn't cut to him. It just stays on Ruth. So I was watching. I was like, oh, man, that's weird. They didn't get a match cut. Um, the scene where Peterson and his partner come out after they survived the terrorist attack. And that scene is completely improvised. And you can tell. You can feel like the way they're moving their hands or like trying to remember their lines and hit their marks. Well, there was no marks on a Friedkin set, as he says. Yeah. So they're trying to kind of work their way through the scene, and you can kind of feel it through the reading of the dialogue. It's like, this feels like it was one take. It is a very, I don't want to say imperfect in a bad way, but like you can see its imperfections quite clearly in everything that they're doing. The line that we quoted at the start about he's the most righteous man I ever knew. There's some cheesy line reads. There's some weird decisions that come out of nowhere. I, I think the, the car chasing, which we'll talk about in a lot more detail, and this isn't spoiling it, but I think there's a point in the doc, the behind the scenes where Freakin's like, there's a scene where he's talking to the actors on the set. He's like, I finally figured out the car chase scene. Let's go film it. And they're yeah. like, wait, we're on, we're on the set right now. We were about to film it 30. You didn't know 30 minutes beforehand what the deal was. He's like, yeah, you know, basically like, that's just how he rolled with this set of being like, yeah. So then people just start shooting you from here. Isn't that crazy? They're like, yeah. And like my favorite part is you see William Peterson and the guy who plays Vukovic just go like, whoa, <laughs> it's, it's insane. They're like, whoa, that's what we're going to do, huh? He's like, yeah. Yeah. We'll get into that later, but there are a lot of imperfections in this movie. Um, and they also pissed a lot of people off and we'll get into that yes. right now. Uh, the shot of Peterson running on the dividers of the moving sidewalk between terminals and LAX got the filmmakers in trouble with the airport police. Uh, Peterson talks about this in Counterfeit World, the documentary about the making of To Live and Die in L.A. Um, it's a really hilarious story where William Freakin came up to Peterson and was like, hey, I can be able to film that thing. And he was like, what? That's that's great. Like, we have to do that. We talked about it. You know, it's, it's part of the scene. William Freakin was like, yeah, I agree with you. I did, too. So if you were to run across that divider, we happen to just be rolling camera. I don't know what would you know what they say. So they do it obviously, and they show the take of him doing it in the behind the scenes, and you hear right at the end of it, just hey, right as it gets ready to cut off, like the second can, like the the B can who's like filming the behind the scenes stuff. You hear someone yell right at the end of it. It might be somebody yelling cut, but I'd like to think that it's airport police running after William Peterson. <laughs> it has to be like they're just like, hey man, don't do this thing. We're gracious enough to you film at our airport in the first place. Yeah, yeah sounds and good. And like. <laughs> They're like, nah, we're just going to do that anyways as we can. And we're, this is a Billy Freakin set. You know, like, this is what we do. And the best part of it, so freaking, is afterwards, the airport police start yelling. He's like, what? What? I told him not to do it. No, <laughs> talk to him. I didn't, I didn't tell him to do it. It just completely throws Peterson under the bus. <laughs> it is a miracle that William Friedkin was not arrested on set for stuff he did. Just between this movie and other stuff. Just like, I, not even disregarding a bad way, but just like... Hey, I'm making my movie. This is how I want this shot to look, and I don't care if I don't have a permit. This is what's going to happen. Uh, the counterfeiting montage looks authentic, really authentic. And that's because Freakin consulted actual counterfeiters who had done time. Mm. Um, the consultant actually did the scenes that don't show actor Willem Dafoe on camera. So all the like intricate scenes of the cutting of the money or the bleaching process, all those close-ups on the hands, that's an actual money launderer. Uh, and Dafoe yeah. actually learned the process to launder money as well. So much so that over $1 million of counterfeit money was produced for the film. 
There's three deliberate errors, though, on the bills. That way it can be used outside of production. Um, and the filmmakers bone, burned most of the money on the film wrapped. However, some did leak out through a prop. <laughs> Aster's son uh, was used and linked back to the production. His son tried to use the prop money to buy candy at a local store with his friend and was caught when he handed the cashier a one-sided $5 bill. Three FBI agents from Washington, D.C. interviewed 12 to 15 crew members, including Friedkin, who screened the work print for them. They offered to show the film to the Secretary of Treasury and take out anything that was danger to national security, and that was the last he ever heard from the government. I mean, am I just, like... I feel like nowadays that would be a really, really big problem. You know what I mean? But like back yeah. in nineteen. Well, yeah, I mean, I think anything where it's like money laundering on a set would be yes, Nick. Yeah, you committed yeah. a federal crime. Like the phone tells this great story about they were on the set and it's like they're filming in this like warehouse in the middle of the desert. The desert, yes. Just shooting the sequence, and it's just Defoe and the crew and Friedkin, and Defoe's doing it, and they're like. It's not even like a joke of like, oh, no, they were just doing it's like, no, they were doing the process. They were doing it actually how you would do it of how to launder money. And Defoe tells a story of it like they're doing it in the middle of it. And they hear a helicopter fly overhead. And Defoe gets freaked out because he's like, oh, my God, is the Secret Service going to actually show up and arrest me? Because we're, we're actually laundering money right now. We yeah. are making fake money that could put us all in jail right now, William. Yeah. Of course, it wasn't the Secret Service. But, like, that is how intensely real this stuff was. Insane. Insane. And consultant. <laughs> Yes, they were just consultants. And and even the best part is they're just like, they may have been people who have experience in this field. It's the way Friedkin kind of words it to be like, yeah. I don't want to admit publicly I hired criminals, but I definitely did hire criminals. Well, I mean, just to go back to talk about that with Friedkin, and I, I feel like we're talking about a long lost pal at this point, but like after hearing all these stories, for cruising, he didn't have permission to shoot in a lot of those bars. He didn't go to the city to get that permission. He went to the fucking mob to get that permission to go shoot there. Nice. <laughs> he went to the, like Tommy Ionello, who owned all those bars in the West Village. He was like, gave him permission to shoot at those bars. Wasn't done through the city in New York. You know what I mean? That's just not how freaking operated. Um, there's a pretty big sex scene in this movie between Peterson and Darlene Flugel, who's Ruth Chance's lover turned informant. Director William, William Freakin revealed to have told the actors to make it as real as possible. Boy, can you feel that one too. Yeah. Um, but from the interview that I read and heard in the um, documentary, she made it sound like her and Peterson were the ones to decide what made them feel comfortable and safe. And Freakin allowed them to make this decision on their own and determine what that scene would be. Um, it's pretty graphic. You know, big Bill Peterson hanging full on hard dong. Pretty crazy. The 80s yeah. were a time when we made things. <laughs> we'll save that talk for later. We almost got Oppie Shaft. Come on, man. Maybe maybe the tides are turning back. I uh, hope so. I would just say the the important like sub note to all this is like Peter Freakin was very open about like I want my artist to feel comfortable and safe. And he took Flugel and Peterson to the set or the actual house. I keep saying set for this movie, but there are no sets. Nope. So it's just like the location. He took them to the house where they were gonna film all this stuff. And he's like, all right, yeah, this is the place. You know, this is where we've been filming for a lot of your guys' scenes. He's like, all right, I'm leaving. I'm going to go get lunch. You guys just have fun and, like, figure it out. And, like, that was the trust he put into his yeah. actors to be like, you guys figure this out. Figure out your character relationship. Figure out what you guys are comfortable with and what you aren't. It was never a guy who was so impulsive and so erratic the way a lot of directors are and controlling 
to be like, I want it this way and that way. And if you make this line change, I'm going to fire you and you're going to touch her this way. And she's going to be okay with it. Cause that's just what I want. It's playing God, but Friedkin doesn't feel like he's playing God at all. It's so interesting that he's like, he's, I'm not sure how to, how to like word it, but like, he more or less wants to be someone just watching real life more than he wants to ever play God in these movies. And it's fascinating. I totally agree. And I think that also extends to the chase scene, uh, which doesn't feel contained or safe at all, even though it was. The chase scene took six weeks to shoot as the last thing to be filmed, which is pretty funny because um, Enkow, who plays Vukovic, brings it up. He's like, I wasn't lost on me that the last (laughs) thing we were filming is a chase scene. So if, you know, Something happened to us. They, to us, they still had a movie. <laughs> uh, and at this point, Freakin's working with a really stripped-down crew, um, which you would think is crazy. But the way he brought it down, broke it down, in his estimation was: you don't need as many crew because something like that is going to be shot by shot by shot. We are moving so slow. We don't need a ton of people all over the place. Um, to me, it still seems pretty fucking crazy. But the idea of a chase going against the flow of traffic came to him in the 60s when he fell asleep on his way home from a wedding and woke up in the wrong lane with oncoming traffic heading right at him. He wondered for the next 20 years how he would use it in his film. This crazy bastard. Like, he really earned his nickname, Hurricane Bill. (laughs) To be like, I almost killed myself this way. Let's put it in a movie. And that's like his genius idea. And to hold on to it for 20 years. (laughs) Well, it's a great idea. In all fairness to him, I sure. can't say how many times a GTA Five I have been like, you know what? Let's try this. So, like, it's almost interesting now. And I just had this thought, and it's very random. I bet William Friedkin would have loved video games because he's someone who wanted to try out all these crazy things in real life. But to do that, he expressed it through art. And nowadays, like people who have these feelings to be like, I'm going to play GTA Five. I'm like. What if I took a tank down Main Street? You could just do that now and see what it looks like. So it's really interesting to that way that video games have occupied this space to be like, hey, what's like, we can almost block stuff out in video games and AI stuff now and like VR. And it's so interesting that like, I imagine Freakin would have loved that. Yeah. And Freakin also wasn't one of those kind of like, like uh, champions of everything needs to be shot on film. He's very open about how he thinks digital looks better. Then 35 millimeter prints, which he says, quote unquote, suck. Um, I, I would disagree. I don't think I would go that far. But um, yeah, he was definitely somebody who was interested in technology. So that's a fair point. You never know. But when devising the chase, he told stunt coordinator Buddy Joe Hooker that if he couldn't come up with a chase better than connection, he wouldn't put it in the film. Uh, Peterson does a lot of his own driving in this. There's no opticals. This chase is authentic. You can tell. So Pankow freaking out in the backseat. It's authentic. Like, he's really, really yes. scared because William Peterson, for all intents and purposes, seems like he's getting off on it in the front seat while he's just literally whipping around through the flood tunnels, flood channels of Los Angeles. Sections of the Terminal Island Freeway near Wilmington, California, were shut down for four hours at a time for three weekends. This caused delays, and the film ran $1 million over budget. Adding to the yeah, chaotic tough. feeling of the chase, freaking stage it so that the freeway tra- traffic flow was reversed. That is, the normal traffic in the scene has the drivers driving on their left in the left-hand lanes, as in Britain, while the cars driving against the flow were driving on their right, as would be usual in North America. <laughs> Let's talk about the chase a little bit. It is the most batshit scene I've seen since I watched Sorcerer. So, you know, kudos to him for, I guess, trying to match himself at every turn. 
it, some many directors are very like afraid of their own legacy and stuff like that and like oh i don't want to just remake this where freaking is openly as you mentioned being like it's better be better than the french connection scene like i want to top myself now and like do this thing of like the exact same scene but better it's got to be one of the best car chases though ever the pacing of it all is so great and i kind of want to go back to something you brought up is maybe not freaking the creators of grand theft auto watch to live and die in la oh yes because the way that it all plays out from the minute they capture Ling, him getting killed, to running behind the barriers, to hopping in the car, to the big chase, and when they finally think they get away, and then there's two more cars coming at them, and there's guys shooting on them from the sides of the bridge. It feels like a mission in a video game. And it's just executed flawlessly. There's not one thing I would uh, change about that chase. Even down to the whole, like, we're down in the, the I don't want to call it the canal. I always forget what this Blood is channels. called. Um, the flood, yeah, like that is exactly. Like, there's a mission in GTA Five where you rob a bank, yeah. and then you go down the flood channels. It it has to be pulled from that or something like it. But like the overall setting of LA and crime and the dirt and like it's not capturing beautiful LA. It's mostly like the beach, the urban streets and stuff like that. It is not really occupied with like the skyscrapers or anything like that. Mm-hmm. I think the most expensive building is probably the hotel in the first scene, and then everything probably. else is downhill from there. <laughs> um, but getting back to the car chase scene, that point you mentioned about like actually seeing William Peterson in the driver's seat, it adds so much because it is not at all like, oh, well, this is a faraway shot, and we're watching from a distance, and you can kind of tell it's a stunt driver, you really squint your eyes. There are intense close-ups of William Peterson driving into oncoming traffic in this movie, and you're like, that cannot be staged. You cannot put a mask on someone else's head to replicate that. You cannot replicate um, Panko in the back seat, who's actually losing his mind for three weeks. Can you imagine, Nick, if it was like, <laughs> hey man, William Peterson, you get to be the hero. Everything's going to be safe. We're going to make sure the stunt drivers are the people driving towards you. You just take care of yourself. You look cool as hell being this cool macho guy. And then for three weeks, you're like, all right, Panko, you're going to be in the back seat. You don't know what's happening. So I guess just buckle up and stay safe and try your best. That's it. That's the scene. And you can feel it. You can feel it yes. in the scene. Like we talked about, you can feel the danger and the, and the fear in Panko. Um, I think it might be, my one of my favorite chases, if not my favorite chase of all time. I can't stop yeah. thinking about it. It's really been in my head a lot. The thing that has hung with me from this movie the most, like you said, it's hard mounts, it's close ups, it's you know we're gonna strap the camera to the front of the car, and it's that is my favorite. If your if your car chase does not have a hard mount, where I feel like I am the point of view of the car racing forward, I'm not buying into your chase scene. I'm not. If you don't have that, I'm, I'm out. It has to be in there. Another film that had to have seen this chase scene, The Batman. I mean, yes. it, it just, oh my God, it's yeah. got to be. That and The French Connect. Well, they're literally driving into oncoming traffic in The Batman. It is. It has to be a direct pull from this movie or mm-hmm. seeing the clips of this movie or something like it. Totally. Which brings us to our next thing, which is our best car chases. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure somebody who's listening to this is going to be like, you idiot, you missed this one. So this is just some of my favorite ones. These are and also ones I pulled from the internet. I put on the French Connection, Ronin, Bullet, Drive, The Town, Death Proof, and The Blues Brothers. I would throw the Batman in there. I really do like that. Okay. Car. I mean, look, I'm we're biased. Let's let's just say that I'm a biased man. If you say Batman, anything, I'm I'm pretty intrigued. 
but I do enjoy that car scene a lot. And uh, I don't think it touches this one or the French connection or probably drive, but it is definitely in contention to be like, that's a fun one. Yeah. Ronan has a really great chase scene too. And I love the town. The town has a great chase scene as well. Um, what well, I love it's, about- it's, <laughs> it's amazing that the town somehow makes Boston traffic and like construction of roads interesting because otherwise it's just hell. Yeah, and that was what I was going to say is maybe I have a little geographical bias, but anybody who's driven in Boston and knows how it's just like old cow path roads is essentially how traffic works there knows that that scene is just just as scary and and, and it's in a yes. way more controlled environment, but it still feels scary. You know what I mean? And that's what I need from those driving scenes to get that adrenaline. It's just like I have to feel scared or else I'm just not like it, it doesn't do anything for me. So that's why Correct I think scene with a good car chase scene. Yeah, yeah, that's true too. Um, so I think I'm probably going to take to live and die in LA just because I love the idea of a chase that escalates the stakes every single time. You know, the town is a great chase, but it's like, how are they going to get away? French Connection has a great chase, but it's like, how is he going to catch up to that train and get the criminal? There's like really kind of like a one track goal. Whereas here it's like, oh man, they made it away. They're good. It's like, now there's guys on the side of the bridges and there's two more cars and now they have to go against oncoming traffic. It just keeps kind of like raising these and like escalating these stakes that I just, I really love and admire too. Yes. And it is what we were talking about. We're freaking just making this up on the day of the set where there must've been like, all right, well, I need people shooting at the car. So like, can we get some from crafts and service to just come over here? We'll give them a fake gun and that, that way we can get that shot done. It can it. Uh, it is just so visceral and like terrifying to watch because it's in the sun too which is the weirder part about it is yeah. that so many movies would offer like a nighttime shoot or something like that but seeing it actually be like people just driving home from work <laughs> like that's the setting it's crazy <sighs> um as early as the day freaking cast peterson he thought about killing off the character of chance um according to editor bed bud smith vukovic was supposed to be the one who was killed the climatic scene in which Chase is killed was not very well received by MGM executives. They found it to be too negative. So to satisfy the studio, <laughs> he shot a second ending in which Chance survives the shotgun blast to his face. And presumably, as an internal punishment, he and Vukovic are transferred to a remote secret service station in Alaska and watch their boss, Thomas Bateman, being interviewed on television. Freakin' previewed it but kept the original ending. Uh, I think that was probably for the best. <laughs> It's one of the dumbest studio mandates I've ever read about. It's like, your solution to this is that they're in Alaska in a cabin? That's it? Oh, they've been punished. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's just like, cool. But needless to say, it was the right decision because Chance's death in this movie is just as shocking and like visceral as the day it was released. For me, it was a complete twist to find out that Ling was an FBI agent. And that, you know, Chance is going to die in the last nine minutes. It does this great thing, too, where we've talked about um, where it really detaches you from the scene. Where after Chance has been shot, it's a wide shot. It's terribly lit in that gym. They should have got a different better. They definitely should have got a better location or better lighting. But if you you are detached and you just see Vukovic trying to shake Chance back alive. And it's like, no, 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 no. This is it. Like, he's really yeah. dead. He's not coming back. Which completely blew me away. I haven't felt that maybe since the departed as far as like shocking character deaths that's the only thing that i could even really think of that came close i what i enjoy so much about this one is that it's so unceremonious there is not an ounce of like slow motion as it's happening to be like oh no the, the henchman's going for his gun and he's swinging it over it's done in two seconds mm-hmm. maybe 
Like, and then he just falls to the ground. And Vukovic, the Chad Chase for, or Chance versus the Virgin Vukovic, just like looks down at him and is like, oh no. And that's the scene. It's just, it's, there's nothing glamorous about it at all. And that's kind of how I feel when Leo dies in The Departed, right? There's no. Yes. I mean, there's a little bit more for his character afterwards. Like, there's the funeral scene, and like maybe she's pregnant with his child. We don't really know. But to me, like you said, it was so. It's still very violent. I mean, he gets half his face blown off, and it looks. It still holds up pretty well. But to me, it was just one of those things where I was like, wait a minute. There's only nine minutes left in this movie. What's like. How's that work? So that, for that alone, to me, like for movies to do that, I, I really enjoy it. It reminds me of like how the French Connection ends. No, I'm going to spoil this. I know. You, have you seen it? No, but it's fine. I, I deserve it. Okay. Yeah, you deserve this. You know, the ending of French Connection, Popeye accidentally shoots another cop and runs after the criminal. And that's how the movie ends. You hear one gunshot and you don't see it happen on screen. And then it just literally plays out like a documentary and tells you what happened with the case. That's kind of, again, what I felt with this movie. Or Roy Scheider. We're like, oh, nice. He's dancing. He's, he's, he's made it. You know, he's clear. But then we see the two Italian mobsters who set him up going to go into the, like, pub to probably clip him. So there is, like, that same kind of, like, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, you know. If Chance, to me, didn't get shot by that guy with a shotgun, like Will Peterson says in the interview, he would have died in a bungee jumping accident or in another bust. It was just a matter of time. He's a character that wants to die in an unconscious way of like, he is constantly tempting fate. I mean, what does he do in the first scene when he's confronting the terrorist? He's not the guy climbing up the ledge to take this guy out safely or whatever. He's like, he's walking to a guy with a bomb. He's like, I'm going to put away my gun and we're going to talk. And that's his idea of how he's going to defuse the situation. Not like, let me take care of this. So he wants, he wants to die, whether he knows it or not. So if this movie does not end with him getting killed, it is completely unsatisfactory for that character. That's why the alternate ending outside of the bogus concept of him surviving a shotgun blast and then going to Alaska makes so little sense because that character needs to die is what he deserves. We should hit here too. Chance is not a good guy in this movie. He completely rips off people. He breaks the law multiple times. He has sexual relationships with his informants. He lies to his superiors. He steals he murders. He's not a good person throughout the whole entire movie. But you are compelled no. by his actions, and you are along for the ride. He is not even like a good cop in the sense of like, well, he he's a badass. Like he gets beat up by John Turturro twice. Yeah. Like <laughs> like that's a tough. Like no defense. No like no shade to John Turturro. Great guy, but like William Peterson is built like a baseball player. And John Turturro's John Turturro, and yet he gets beat handedly, and then he gets the jump on him by a henchman. Like, there's nothing. This movie is never trying to be like, well, you know, Rick Masters isn't a good cop, but fucking badass. Like, the coolest thing is a car chase scene, but I think this movie does a great job at emphasizing that's more dangerous and stupid, and a thing that he has to do to escape his own problem, mm-hmm. rather than him trying to look cool about it. Yeah, and and they do a great job with Vukovic within that scene. Of his reaction and like when the bullet gets yes. shot through the window. Yeah. So I agree with you. It is a character to me who has to be punished in, in some way. I thought that I thought that was an extreme. I thought he would be arrested or something. I think he's going to get his <laughs> face blown off. Um, but that kind of does it for our production stuff, which leads us into our casting section. And I think while we're already talking about Chance, William Peterson's character, why not start here on him? He's somebody that we've kind of been talking about 
off and on mic for the past couple of days. Oh, Peterson, man. Oh, boy. Pretty hunky in this. You know, I was watching it. Katie walked by. She was like, who's that boy right there? Oh, wow. I was like, that's Gil Grissom, girl. Um, he's got this and Manhunter as two badass lawman roles. Um, he ultimately winds up playing Gil Grissom on CSI for 20 plus years, which I honestly think is the role he was meant to play. But like, it, to me, it's just kind of a guy who had a pretty big opportunity and a pretty big space that he could have filled to be a superstar. But it's a lot of bad picks. It's a lot of like, Young Guns 2. I mean, I think the best movie out of his filmography after this is probably Fear. He's not in that as much. But every single interview I hear and I like, read with him he's like referring to this experience as intoxicating or amazing or you know he calls billy freaking like his soulmate like or his best friend on like multiple times it's like it just seems like somebody who was so excited by the process of making film it surprises me that he just didn't do more with that well it's not just excited it's intense i think is the biggest thing um and you know Spoiler, we're going to be talking more about William Peterson next week. You'll probably have, like, one other guess about what movie it is, because he only has two real movies anyone wants to talk about. So, you know, put two and two together, folks. You'll figure it out. But he talks about very deeply in this movie and Manhunter about, like, the effects playing these characters had on him and how deeply they were in him of, like, he had to do plays and he bleached his hair after Manhunter to kind of, like, escape the character and I think it's a real recognition <laughs> that Jeremy Strong needs to be like, hey, man, this isn't healthy. Like, mm. acting is wonderful, and, and giving yourself over to a character and a director are magnificently beautiful things to watch happen. But sometimes actors go to the lengths that are not healthy. And I don't know if, if Peterson went, you know, like, I'm not a better man for doing this, and that's why he pulled away. But he did make a conscious choice at one point to stop being in a lot of mainstream movies because he got offers, you know, he got offered for platoon and Goodfellas, and he turned them both down. So it's not for a lack of effort or a lack of like availability. It was more or less that he decided personally, like, look, I could have done this, but I chose not to because it wasn't for me ultimately. Yeah, I respect that choice. I just wish that there was a couple more movies from his filmography, you know, before it's 20 years of, of episodic yes. television. And that is the, as much as I respect his integrity, like you just said, he is magnificent in this movie. He is just like, are some of the line reads bad? Yeah. Is some of his, but real quick, is that really all his fault though? One take Billy, right? You can't fully blame. That is true. There's probably a lot of those takes where he doesn't even know the camera's fucking rolling. (laughs) That's true. I mean, we we know there's at least one. So there's probably two or three. Yeah. Yes. But I think he he definitely does this role justice in the sense of, like, completely believable. He really does immerse himself into the character. The dead, the thing that we'll talk about <laughs> next week, spoiler, his dead eyes. The way he can turn his soul, like, off as an actor is remarkable. The scene where he's staring at Darlene as he's getting undressed, it really does go a long way in conveying not only so much about him, but that relationship of, like, I don't think this is a very like two-way relationship. I think it is much more of him being like, look, you're going to do this with me because I, I can just turn you over. And that's another part of why this character fucking sucks as a person. Um, but he conveys that brutality and that darkness so, so well. I think of the scene when they find out that Ling was the FBI informant. And, you know, he still looks like bleary-eyed and drunk from the night before. Yes. And he's just like... Vukovic is panicking, and he's just kind of like, like you said, just dead-eyed, just like, 
all right, what's the next play? Like, what's my next move? I'm in a jam. And I just love He's that. Dissociating. Like, yeah, yes. that character of who's just like, it's almost like Saul Goodman where it's like, where there's no there's no angle I can't find out of the situation. It's just, yeah, it's a great character. Um, I agree with you. Sometimes the line rings are a little rough, but to have the range of this in the movie we're going to talk about next week where they're really kind of opposite characters. I don't want to say Again, it. Don't say it. Just take don't two seconds, it. people. You'll figure it out. I'm just, that's all it. we're saying. Um, the, the, the exact opposites, but yet the co- combination of the two is, is really what makes him great in this movie, I think. Well, that's the other part I think is important to talk about the performance is as much as it's an evil man performance, he also sells it so hard of like what a bro he is and like mm-hmm. an unintelligent, arrogant, self-absorbed dickhead. And he does it also like he's wearing... Uh, a Steelers jersey as he exits the bar and like cut up jeans and like a button up that really almost exposes his navel. Like he's really full out eighties, like hero cop outfit attire. And he pulls that off as well as he does as like conniving evil guy. (laughs) Uh, I think that probably does it on Peterson. As far as his career, we're going to talk about him more next week. So let's not spill all the tea. Um, But Peterson called fellow Chicago actor, John Pankow who plays Vukovic. He brought him to Friedkin's apartment the day after being cast as Chance. Um, he recommended him for the role, and the director agreed on the spot. Didn't have him read, didn't have him look at the script, and see what his credits were. Just hired him. Same thing pretty much with Peterson. Peterson read half a page. He's like, all right, you're good. You got the job. Um, Friedkin knew he only had a $6 million budget, so he wasn't going to get a lot of stars in this, so he kind of really didn't have much to pick and choose from. Uh, while Peterson may not have had the movie career we think he should have, or whether that even matters. There's another gentleman in this film who at the time was an unknown and did have the career that, you know, he probably intended, and that's Willem Dafoe. He's only been mm. up to, in seven films at this point. None of them are huge roles. I think one of them is, like, the disastrous Heaven's Gate, where he's just uncredited. Um, yeah. Let's talk Dafoe. His performance, his career. You know, I knew Willem Dafoe as a young man was quite hot. Was not prepared for the levels of which we are exposed to here. It is gamma radiation level stuff here. So manicured and like accurate, you know, whether it be mm. his clothing or just like his face seems like it was just like cut with like a 3d printer to perfection. You know, um, I'm not a huge fan of the character. I think masters comes and goes out of this movie far too often. His motivations are very blurry. It's like, he's a money launderer who makes art, but then he burns the art. It's like, this is the the one downside to a lot of freaking stuff is he never tries to explain anything in a lot of his movies. It just happens, really. Mm-hmm. Like, there's no point of like, oh, well, this is why he's doing this. And you know, if you really go back to look at Chance's backstory, he was doomed from the start. He came from a broken home or whatever. And it's just like, there's none of that. It's just like, wow, they're doing that thing, and that's it. And that's really the case with Masters, where he comes and goes. It's like. They're like, well, he's a criminal who killed people. And then it's like, but then how did he learn the art of money water? They're just like, don't know. <laughs> it's like, all right. <laughs> I think Willem Dafoe gives a good performance when he give, he he's in the movie and given the chance. Um, I think the fight scene he's quite good in, where he gets the shot off and the guy's cops. Yes. Pretty great scene. Um, I think he's got some banger outfits, that velvet fucking yeah. oh. tank top. The tracksuit? That's hard as fuck, man. I mean, that's just, that's wild, boy. Well, so here's here's the thing. I have one small hot take about the Defoe performance. He needed to age another, like, five to ten years afterwards. Because, like, I didn't realize how baby-faced young woman Defoe was. He's 30 in this movie. 
passes for 25. Oh, he does. And, and he needs a little bit more edge and roughness to him, I feel, for this character. Because, like, his voice, and I don't mean this negatively, but it, it's still a little high. Whereas you listen to, like, behind the scenes stuff, Willem Dafoe's voice in, like, Spider Man era and, like, a little beforehand is like, I'm not, no, I'm not doing that. But I just mean, like, he's like, it's that, like, the little deeper baritone. And I think that would have made Masters all the more menacing to me um, because he's just not – he could do the performance now as it is on, on the capture. But I think if he was a little older, he brings a little more weight, a little more gravitas to the role that I think you probably need for a villain. Buddy, you were at the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, I do yeah, like, love – I do – but what I do He knows how to love, hand those roles up. Yeah. yeah. What I do love about that is that kind of stuff. But also um, I think – where maybe, like you said, you age him up a little bit. What I like about the character as it is, is he seems streetwise and savvy, but very androgynous. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, there's a toughness and there's a danger to him, but there's also, like, there's kind of, like, maybe an amb- ambiguity behind his sexuality. He might be bisexual. And there's also, like, this, like I said, very manicured and, like, accurate depiction where sometimes I think we uh, we get too many villains like the thug who kills Chance in these early 80s movies. Yeah. Mid 80s movies. We'll, we'll talk about him later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I love the scene of like when he gets the money from Chance and he like sniffs the money and all he does is laugh. And that's the most like Sam Raimi saw this movie. He's like, that's Norman Osborne right there. <laughs> Just the laugh, the like way his, his teeth look are not like straight. They're like very jagged and bumpy. And I just think like Defoe as a face. And like just his facial structure and his body and his voice and everything like that, it is aged so perfectly. And I think that you can see all the seeds of that in this movie. It is really fun to look at. It is fun to look at because it's probably his first memorable role, right? You know, I, I don't think yes. that a lot of people have seen it. But if you if you were to pull up his credits, enough people would be like, oh, yeah, that's like the first movie I saw Willem Dafoe in. Um, yes. The thing, I, again, I just think that it suffers from is this movie really starts to cook in its last hour. He's just not really present in it until the very, very end. No, he's just working out all the time, and maybe we get more shots of that, you know, for everyone. Buff and tan, I love it. <laughs> this film was criticized at the time for its lack of stars. Um, there's now some household names in there. John Turturro, William Peterson, obviously, through CFI, CSI, Willem Dafoe, through uh, Take Your Pick of Projects, uh, and Jane Levy's. So, while at the time, probably a risky move, something that has paid off in the long haul for a lot of these people. We will get into our last thing of the day before we get into the meat and potatoes of the conversation here, which is box office and accolades. Not covering a flop this week. This movie made some money. Uh, to, live in, <laughs> to Live and Die in LA premiered in the United States on November 1st, 1985 in 1,100 screens. It grossed $3.6 on its opening weekend behind Death, Death Wish 3. It then went on to make $17.3 million in the United States and Canada, well above its $6 million budget. No awards or, or Academy stuff for this film. No surprise there. But in 2008, the Los Angeles Times voted LA the 19th best movie about Los Angeles in the last 25 years. The criteria was the movie had to communicate some inherent truth about the LA experience, and only one film per director was allowed on the list. Yeah. I think that's all pretty fair. I don't think this movie should have gotten any Oscars. I don't think it should have been. It's it's not really an L.A. movie, though. Like, I don't – I watched it, and I'm not oh, like, really? ooh, that's 
Well, I mean, I don't know. I just don't feel like it's immersed in like the world of like fame and fortune and stuff. Well, fortune for sure, I guess. But counterpoint, I think it does. I think it really does. It's a city that's based off of counterfeit relationships, and people being fake. True. You know what I mean? And I don't think there's one person in this movie who's quite honest or their their real selves with anybody. I guess I would have liked to see more of that sort of stuff in like the actual traditional LA. Like there's stuff about the acting world that I think could have been really interesting with this because Master's girlfriend is an actress. Mm-hmm. Maybe exploring more of the Hollywood stuff would have been interesting to me. Like what if Masters is money laundering through film? That'd be kind of interesting. But I I, I mean I have no complaint. It's definitely a California movie more than it is an LA movie to me personally, because the story of ambition and greed is so tied to LA or California mm. that I find that really appealing. Yeah. I think it reminds me too of heat where it's like 19 of the locations in heat are like locations that people had never filmed that before. You know, they're by the yes. oil derricks by LAX or at a broken down garage. It's a different side of LA. You know, you're not always going to get that glitz and glamor and, Kind of the the flashiness, especially from this era. So I kind of like how it detracts that. Like it takes that away from the movie a little bit. It, it is the grimy and gritty version of LA. So we can talk about that more as we get into our discussions here. But the first thing I want to say is freaking in his edge. Like he still got it here. The car chase, the violence of the shotgun scene, the counterfeit montage, sex and corruption, guys drinking beers and eating cheeseburgers at noon. The dynamite scene where Chance is going back and forth with the chief about, about the $30,000 for front money. It's really great stuff, and I've always loved his ability to fuse his real roots of documentary with something still as glitzy and stylized as this. It's amazing that Friedkin, his career peaks the subject what we talked about, but he never like goes away. He doesn't try and tone himself down. He doesn't try to conform. He's always just like cutting his edge and cutting his teeth on like something he really wants to chew on and something meaty, you know? Like... A movie in the middle of 1980s about corrupt cops in L.A. that doesn't end with like, oh, well, the corrupt cop got it and that's that. The movie, the end of this movie is, well, the corruption is going to continue because Vukovic is going to get a partner. <laughs> Maybe we need to sidebar real quick to talk about Vukovic's look at the end. Look, William Peterson could pull that off because he's William Peterson. John Pankow, no disrespect, sir. You can't quite pull off the ripped jeans and the like, the really button-down navel and the leather jacket. Just not a good look for you. Like, come on. Um, but the message to be like, nah, this is just to continue and continue and continue and continue, which bleeds into so much of what happens in L.A. later on in that decade, that it's really just like a bold author auteur being like, nah, it's, just, it's true is the sad part. It's abundantly true. And Friedkin just never shies away from any of that. Yeah, he was just never afraid to put characters on the brink or, like, to blur lines. Like, Popeye, is he a good cop? Like, there's no question the devil exists in The Exorcist. Bruising and it's, like, provocativity with homosexuality. Like, is anyone good in Sorcerer or Killer Joe? Chance is clearly corrupt, you know? Um, I really enjoy the idea of being able to spend two hours with somebody who doesn't have to be good. They just have to be compelling, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you really think of maintain that edge. And that's where I kind of feel like I was wrong about Killer Joe. The thing about his idea of, of corrupt cops, I guess to me, has always been like his corrupt cops are never like taking money from criminals or like working on the side to like make things worse for people. A lot of his corrupt cops in French Connection and this 
killer joke kind of to some extent are always about like i believe in good and wrong and i want to punish the wrong but it's how i get to doing that that is what makes them corrupt versus like we're taking money on the side we're letting criminals go we're doing x y and z to like make the city worse they're all cops that are mostly trying to make the city better and catch the criminal yeah it's their methodology which is corroded you know it's not their action it's not what they're actually trying to accomplish and I find that much more interesting of the approach of like systemic police problems in America than to be like, no, they're all just working for criminals, which then makes the blame to be like, well, no, the criminals are the people that are tainting the cops rather than the cops actually tainting themselves. <laughs> um, lots of guys either getting shot or kicked in the dick in this movie. Yeah, um, I was wondering when we would bring this up. <laughs> Old boy William Peterson flashes full on hard dong. William Defoe lets his cheeks out. Um, I believe there's a scene too, like where <laughs> Vukovic drops Trout in a, in a gym bathroom as well. Yes, he does. He does. I was like, oh my god, these guys are getting full on butt naked in the gym. Yeah, um, but on a more serious note, like there's this idea to me in some odd way. I don't know what it is. That this is just freaking kind of being a man. Like, does that make sense? In what sense? Well, like it's just like his films are so masculine. You know what I mean? And they're always dealing with guys on the edge. You know, it's very rare that we spend, you know, quantitative time with a female character in a William, William Friedkin film. So to me, it just felt like, um, like a commentary on masculinity. You know what I mean? I, I don't know what necessarily, but maybe just like I'm, uh, there's like this, um, unabashedness to the, the the male anatomy that I think we kind of like don't have for, for the female anatomy that's reserved for being sexy and you know sleek right, right. so like no I wouldn't I don't want to see any of these dudes really take their clothes off you know what I mean <laughs> in, the, in the grand scheme you don't want to see Panko get naked no um, but it, to me it just spoke of like a, some some kind of angle of masculinity that I've been trying to figure out because it's it's really overt it happens a lot Yes, it, it's I think he just doesn't care about societal norms is like the, the greater part of it. It's just like, hey, this scene calls you guys. It's like, look, we go to the gym. When you go to the gym locker room, there are guys who are naked. It's just a fact. I've seen a lot of old dude ass. It just is what it is when you go to the gym. So I think it's part of that. And I think it's part of just like when people make love, they get naked. And he's not afraid of that sort of thing. Part of me also wonders if he can do this sort of stuff because he's not working with like a lot of premier actors. You know, if this is Steve McQueen in this movie, hypothetically speaking, or like Paul Newman, I don't think Paul Newman would be like, yeah, well, William, let me get naked. You know, like I don't think he'd full yeah. show his full on dong. Whereas William Peterson, who comes from a theatrical background, is much more liberal and doesn't really care about that sort of thing. And also is like, hey, if that's the director calls for, that's the director calls for. I don't really have. Uh, a real stance or like power play here to like say no. But I do think there is a large part of Friedkin that is interested in the idea of societal norms and like what's cool and what's not. And like, obviously that's very apparent in cruising. So it's something that he's obviously thinking about. Yeah. I, this was one of the questions that just put in there because I, I don't have an answer to it, but I just want to talk about it. And I think you bring up some really good points. Um, but maybe that's something I need to go back and, Maybe I need to go back and just kind of rewind the scenes where there's some dong just in slow motion and maybe I can get some clues and figure it out. Just do some more research. 
Yeah, I'm just gonna go study more uh, to live and die in L.A. But it's it's only the car chase scenes and the penis scenes. It's just all <laughs> I want. On a more serious note, I think this movie has a pretty overt political angle. It comes at a time where we all know it was laden with government interference and the overstepping of ethical and legal boundaries. Iranian Contra situation. Bleak ending in which Vukovic turns into chance has to be a reflection of this or at least some kind of commentary. Whatever it takes ethos, you know, that hides the real intentions of what fuels the cause. Um, I mean, they work for the Secret Service. Cyclical nature of how history just repeats itself and, you know, Mm -hmm. corruption never really stops. It just takes a little bit of time off. Um, I think that's really good stuff that also let me left me thinking past the runtime. Mm-hmm. I think it's very also poignant that as much as we're talking about bad cops and the idea that Friedkin is is really prioritizing the corruptness of police, he also does a lot of work in this movie, I feel, and it's very subtle to show that like, hey, not the whole police department or the whole Secret Service are corrupt. You know, there's Robert Downey, Robert Downey Jr.'s father's in this movie, as I, I believe the captain. He's like, I'm not going to do your antics. Like, that's not how this works. You know, Hart, who I think is a mostly good character, morally, he seems to have his right head on track. And I think his death is really what makes Chance spiral literally and then morally to be like, well, if they kill a good guy like Hart, why would I want to be good either? You know, that sort of feeling. Um, So in that sense, I do appreciate that Freakin is not making it as simple as like, all cops are bad. It is a story of like there are people in these departments and these places of power that are corrupt and evil, and they will always regurgitate and recycle their ideas to the next generation. But there are a lot of other people who are not feeling that way as well. Totally. And I think you hit on a good point too of like that makes the violence that much more hard hitting, where it's like somebody yes. who we see as morally good, like Hart, again on the flip side dies in the first 10 15 minutes in a really terrible way he gets shot twice in the yeah. face with a shotgun this is supposed to be a hero you know what i mean so it does you're right it does do a very good job of like establishing who is who is morally gray in this world and who's somebody that we might be able to trust and kind of look at as good now that said you bring up the heart character this speaks to one of the problems of the freaking movie no idea why he goes there without anyone else. There is no mention of like, I'm going to recon or, oh, I'm reconning this and, oh, this is open. It's just like, it's a massive well, plot hole. And like, there's yes. no, and it's also not one of those things where like chance is like inhibited from meeting up with, you know, heart. Uh-huh. He's just like, nah, man, I got it alone. He's like, well, all right, I guess he's got it alone. <laughs> you know, it's very much like he, he would still in real life. be Like, no, I'm fucking going with you. They're probably armed. And if there's somebody there, they're going to cap your ass. Yeah, exactly. It's just like, I don't know. He's just like, well, gate looks open. Let's just give it a shot. Why not? And then it's like the chance that like every other officer in the Secret Service then show up three days later. It's just so weird that they're like, in what world is a mil- is a police operation happening? Then three days later, everyone else goes to check. Like, wh- what? Also a really great Peterson scene because he's not like bawling his eyes out like, oh, no. Mm-hmm. You know, he just opens the bin, finds him and closes it. It's already compartmentalizing and onto the next thing. I love that detail. You know, it could have been one of those things where it was very drawn out and like he's got his badge, heart's badge with him. You know, and he looks at it at the end of the movie before he gets shot. That's not who. That's not who Chance is. He's like, all right, well, he's not dead. Time to fucking go back to work. You know. I, great. I think speaking to the ethos of this movie and like the stuff we've talked about, there's no way Vukovic lasts another ten years. He'll be dead soon, eventually too. 
I don't know. I like Vukovic. The boy schemes. <laughs> you like your balding heroes? Is that what you're trying to say? Listen, Vukovic is a is a is a great role player. Put him in for 12 minutes. He goes and grabs you eight boards and puts up nine points. You know what I mean? You're not expecting Vukovic to be the hero at the end of the day. But he's got the experience, and he's obviously just his darkest chance by the end of this movie that you can count on him to keep his fucking mouth shut. Yeah, but Vukovic is like... He's, he's kind of just... He had some soul at one point, and I wonder if this movie's really exploring the idea that, like, what well, Chance probably had a soul too at one point, and then he just gave it up, and maybe Vukovic is just doing exactly what Chance did. Yeah, but I feel like Vukovic is not as cool, or like I said, like, he comes across very much of like, man, you know, I'll never admit it, but I did really like how Chance dressed, and now that he's dead, someone's got to raid that closet, and it's just like, dude, you are not Chance. Don't, like, he's going to show up to work the next day in that exact same outfit. It's like, he can't pull this off. What is he doing? Freakin says that was intentional, obviously, for Vukovic to be dressed like Chance to show the nature of, oh, man, he just indoctrinated this guy. And now he's just doing the same cycle. So it is a little bit overt. Josh is right. It's kind of on the nose. But I do enjoy it. And I don't think it doesn't work as much as you think. And I also enjoy Vukovic's performance probably more than you do. It's somehow a darker end of the exorcist of like demon possession lives on oddly. Like it's really weird how that's the movie that ends with like, no, there's another demon in that body now. (laughs) That's a good point. Last thing I have here is the need for physical media. Uh, Have I said this on the show? I don't think you brought this up. No. (laughs) Uh But for real, though, like Rampage, I said, has only a physical release in Poland. Live and Die in L.A. isn't readily available anywhere. It was a pain in the ass to find in the Blu-ray for it's like $50, $60 in some places. Bill of the Century was out of print up until 2014. Sorcerer Blu-rays have been bought up and are now going up on price for eBay and other third-party sellers. There's no reason I shouldn't be able to pop down to the archive, shout out, or go into the T-bin at their store and find this movie. I should be able to go to the library and watch Sorcerer and rent it. You know, I think that's a shame. I know that, like, some of these are hit or miss, but a guy like Freakin deserves better. I think his whole filmography should be something we are able to tangibly touch and feel, just as he intended. Physical media is, uh, it's making a comeback, I think, in in a lot of ways. Because a lot of people are expressing your feelings about almost anything. Uh, and in an age where streaming platforms are increasingly willing, I guess is the important part, to just take down anything that's taking up space and that's not generating clicks, you're only going to see, I think, more and more of that. I mean, Disney themselves are now pivoting towards releasing like The Mandalorian on DVD. And uh, I think some of the, the Marvel shows are coming to DVD now, probably because people want it. And like, there is now a market for that. And I hope it continues. I think the downside to physical media, uh, especially in the case of Friedkin, is that he did not work for a lot of studios or places that were powerhouses. You know, I, I don't. Who produces this movie exactly? Is it Universal? Uh, it's kind of a conglomerate, and funny enough, it went bankrupt. Yes. Uh, it was SLM. That's what I mean. And then was purchased by MGM. <laughs> So then who had, I think a rights issue was primarily the cause for a lot of this of like, I don't know who owns Sorcerer. Like, I I imagine it's just an issue of like, there's no one that has all the rights to then publish it all out to then give, you know, people to buy it then. It was weird. When I was watching Freakin' Uncut, while there was a lot of American filmmakers in there who talked 
you know, his peers and his, you know, people who are, who are admir- admirers spoke so highly of William Friedkin as a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. But all of the academia and educational points you get and events that he's attending where he's being honored are in Europe. There's yes. not, they're not in the United States. You know what I mean? It's a lot of, like, Sorcerer has a great Blu-ray with, like, a 40-page book, but it's a French release Blu-ray. You know, it's not mm-hmm. a lot of, um, I guess, accreditation from um, American sources, which is weird for a guy to me. Again, it, it's it's varied, but has three three of the best films of the seventies under his belt. Yes, um, it's just a yeah. problem that I've always had, and I agree with you. There, there, some people don't want the space of things taking up, you know, their shelves with Blu-rays or DVDs, what have you, but. It's an important medium. I think it should should st- still be around. And uh, yeah, it just it makes me sad to know that it's a pain in the ass for somebody to find Rampage and watch that movie. Well, and it's just a problem for the people who want to probably listen to this episode of like, they don't know this movie. They're going to look to try and find it. And unless you have to really dig and go to some places, then you're not going to find it. And that's an issue. Like outside of the whole debate of like, is it worth your time or whatever? Art should be able to be seen and viewed in the most accessible way possible if you have the money to make it happen, because that's how it should be. And whether it's rights or just not a lot of availability or demand, it's just not happening as much as it should. You know, I I really do feel for a lot of the people who spent time and money and blood and sweat and tears on TV shows that are now just being deleted off a server. And it's like, hey, that thing you poured your soul into? Can't can't have it. I guess you better save those files on your computer, pal, or else you're never gonna be able to go back and watch the thing that you made. Yeah. And it's just evil and like awful. And like if it means physical media, then yeah, that's what it should be for now. I, I don't really feel any way about it, but like that's what it has to be. I concur. As always, you know, Road Dogs Podcast loves to leave you on a somber note. But uh <laughs> let's go yeah. out well, on a little not bit. yet. Not yet. I got I got one last thing too, just to okay. kind of summarize how I feel about LA. Um, I'm really excited that we got to do this movie. I always enjoy kind of doing a retrospect of somebody's career. But as far as this movie, I think it's one of the best films of the 80s. Twisted Pulls and the way The Last Hour absolutely cooks. It's freaking still in that area of really big risks and danger that feels authentic. Um, and a guy who's still maybe working in his peak or at the end of it. Um, despite a, an audience that really post-1970s leaves him, if you really think about it bleak ending that fits right in with an era of government interference and pushing ethical boundaries. I give it a uh, two thumbs up. I would too. I have some issues with it, but you know, it's not yeah. space for this. I do have some issues with performance from last year that came out in June. We are now almost a year and a half post EPE, post Elvis, PCTP. It's time for the Colonel Tom Parker Award. I am the legendary Colonel Tom Parker. You look lost. Get ready for the spotlight. I surprisingly have a good number of candidates here. I don't know if you feel the same. I don't know. No. I don't know. Look, I'm a sicko who still, I'm probably the only person that cares about this segment. Let's just not kid ourselves. Uh, at my notes at the top, I have a section titled CTP, and I write down all my people. I assume you did not write this down. I did not, no. I let you handle CTP. Okay. 
Well, thank you. It's my baby, and it's why it's this is why we put it at the end so people who do not care can just skip to the end, and it's like, all right, well, the podcast is over. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. I have uh, Robert Downey as the chief, just pulling off some hand lines of like, I can't give you that thirty thousand dollars, and it's like, really, it's the best you can give us. You're you're staring two cops in the eye who are about to go commit a federal crime. It's like I can't get you the money, Chance. Sorry. It's like, come on, step it up a little bit. <laughs> Turo, I thought that Turo was a little weak in this movie, I must say. Mm. You know, this is, there's the chat with Defoe where he's like, I can't fucking get, I can't fucking stay in here. Yeah. It's like, whoa. <laughs> only, thing I'll say, only thing I'll say in defense of anybody who's of the younger cast in this movie, they're in their yeah. first handful of roles. That is true. <laughs> you know what I mean? So we got to do, there is like a little bit of a grace period for that. He is not awful by any means, but there's just moments where I'm like, man, Totoro needed some seasoning here, and it's good he got his chops in this movie. You're not wrong. I wrote down, this is an odd one, as most of mine are. There's a priest that walks into the room when Chance and Vukovic are staking out the thing. And this is in L.A., and I believe this man is Scottish, or he has some weird voice like, can I bring you something else? And it's like, whoa, what's this guy doing here? Come on. Josh, can I tell you something? I'm from Scotland, live in L.A., brother. Well, yeah, but a Scottish priest in L.A. who's supervising the stake out of two federal agents, it's a touch sure. of a stretch. Sure. Can okay. we get, again, get someone from Arts and Crafts to just say that one word, <laughs> we're the cassock, we're done, the scene doesn't ever have it like, was that guy fucking Scottish, European? What was that? My next candidate, Jack the Henchman. This guy. I think he's the the front runner, front runner, because he just comes that he's like, yeah, sure, boss. Like he just he's really cla- like the classic henchman in a movie where it's like he's giving strong Mimsy vibes. Anybody who's a South Park oh, fan no. will know. Yeah, that is a deep cut right there. He's giving like Batman sixty six vibes, but that's just a dock worker that Friedkin found while he was waiting for a ride to work. He's like, you can be the henchman of the movie. There you go. Yeah. My last candidate is, uh, I believe his name is Steve James. He plays the African-American that makes a deal with Masters. Okay. I think he is fine. But in his first scene with Defoe, it is all ADR. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's quite distracting. And that's what CTP is about, folks. It's about a distracting performance or choice someone makes that is like, whoa, I can't focus on the movie anymore because that is that choice. And it's like... It's so clearly ADR too, because like all the shots are of that guy like looking away from Defoe or like the back of Defoe's face being like, and it's like Defoe's like laughing and scoffing the scene and being like, oh yeah, I think this. And it's like, yeah, bro, I think that's a great idea. We'll make sure the hit gets done. And this is and the it's thing. Just, about, it's awful. And this is the thing about taking one take, like the the, the procedure on set, at least th- that I've been yes. on, is you do a take, and hey, that was a great take. Let's get one more for safety. Right. Let's just have another one to just in case something happens to that or real or a card, whatever it may be. That's the problem of doing one take right there. William Friedkin is you wind up having to do yes. ADR for half of a scene. Because he's like, all right, check the gate. Looks good. Done. Let's move out of here. And Moving then they're on. in the editing room months later. And they're like, we didn't pick up his audio. We only have Willems. And it's like, well. I guess we're getting Steve James back in the booth. And the worst part is there's then a second scene with Steve James where he fights Defoe, not 80 yard. 
So it's scene. all over the place. It's a great scene. And I think Steve James is pretty well here. But it's just, it's all over the place of like ADR, not ADR. It's, it's, it's so awful. And it's a pivotal scene too that sets up the whole like sequence of like they don't kill Turo since Turo gets out and helps Peterson and he escapes Peterson to chase him, yada, yada, yada. So it's just tough. It's tough in an important scene where they're like, don't have proper sound. Yeah, you bring up some good points. That fight scene is badass, though. I just, I, I would like to talk right. about that just for two seconds. It's just, you watch the behind the scenes, and they were really beating the shit out of each other. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, people definitely really got hurt doing that. Um, so, I think while the ADR stuff is rough, his performance and his physicality in that scene is really dynamite. I would agree. Uh, Jack the Henchman with a big win in that scene, too. Shoots a couple men. You know, shout Yeah, out he him. does. Yeah. You have a favorite. I'm going to go with Jack the Henchman. I'm going to go with Jack the Henchman, too. I just Let's think go. he just is... Again, I, I, I want to look up this man's work because I, I have a feeling that he he's not even a credit. So everyone else on the uh, the Wikipedia for this movie has a little blue squiggly, which means there's a link. Sure. Jack does not. That's got there's no, no There is no further reference to Jack Hoare as Jack, which means they clearly named his character Jack because they were like, what's your name? And he said Jack. Yep, that's 100%. the extent of it. <laughs> oh, that's the of it. <laughs> well, congratulations, sir. You are the winner of the Colonel Tom Parker Award this week. And that'll about does it here for the Road Dogs podcast. Josh, where are we going next week? If you want to tell the audience, or you I want mean, to keep it hidden. No one can guess what it could possibly be after our hints, but it is Manhunter. <laughs> I mean, I'll tell you this little story. I texted you as I was watching to live in Dine LA. And I looked up William Peterson's like, from Illinois? Why wasn't this guy ever working with Michael Mann? And you're like, he did, a year later. And I was like, oh, yeah, Manhunter, huh? So then I watched that. And I was like, boy, I was going to do Ali, but Manhunter's pretty great. So we're going to be doing that next week. <laughs> I look forward to it. An audience, you should too. Keep up on those updates. Like, rate, subscribe. Check us out on Instagram. Road underscore dogs underscore podcast. Road dogs out. Boo!